0: Verse 1, and it says, and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a poor widow putting in two mites. And so he said, truly I say to you that the poor widow, that this poor widow has put in more than all. for, For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Now this account of what the widow gave, putting in all of the livelihood that she had in contrast to, as we see here, as contrast to the rich who gave out of their abundance... It it, it doesn't represent, obviously, the least that we can give, right? It's not a representation or an illustration for us in regards to the least that we can give, but the most that we can give. Literally, the very all. the, 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 The idea of giving all that we can. All that we have. All that we are. And in light of this, we should see that when it comes to our giving... Listen, God sees more than just the portion. He sees the poor portion, the percentage. God sees more than the portion. He sees the poor portion. In other words, man can see what is given, and we do too in our own lives. We measure, we account, we do. We see whether it's a time thing or a energy thing or a resource thing or even a money thing, we look at the amount that is given. And we see what is given in doing so, but you know what? God sees what is left. That's what we see in this account. This is what we learn from this account. Man sees what is given, but God sees what is left. And by that, by that, he measures the gift and the condition of our heart. It was Winston Churchill who said this, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. But not only by what we give, but listen, more importantly, but why we give. You see, it's not just an issue of what we give, but why we give. And it's obvious that this widow's sacrifice was fueled for her love of God and by her trust that he would take care of her. Putting in all that she had. And as we consider her sacrifice, this great sacrifice, this great gift that she had given, it's important to understand that our God has no need for our sacrifices. We're told that over and over and over again throughout God's Word. Whenever we come across this topic of giving, God wants to remind us, listen, I don't have any need of what you're giving why? Because there's nothing he needs from us that he can't do or provide for himself. So we must conclude that in this life when we give to or make a sacrifice for God, the real beneficiary is ourself. Now, because Jesus had told his disciples that this poor widow had put in more than all the others, even though she had only put in these two small copper coins, these two mites, we must understand in light of this that our giving is ultimately and always a matter of the heart. And this is what God cares about most. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says this, For the Lord does not see as man sees. Why? Because man can only look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In light of all this, we, see, we must see that the, the offering of the two mites served more of a, of a spiritual purpose than it did a temporal one. After all, what could two mites really buy? The offering of the two mites served more of a spiritual purpose than it did a temporal one. And and so it's true for us when we give to and sacrifice for God with the right heart attitude. But in order to do so, we have to have faith, right? That's the other aspect of what we're looking at in this account. We must have faith. Faith. And I think that this poor widow that we read about and which we watched about here in this video clip, I think she examples literally the childlike faith that Jesus had praised people for when He, when, 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 when He, he, he at that time when the, the children were brought before him. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples, and he said to them in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, he said, Who whosoever Therefore shall humble themselves as this little child, the same as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that in regards to faith, and in regards to giving to God. And to become like a child in our faith, in regards to our faith, to become like a child in regards to our faith, we must learn to trust completely in our heavenly Father. Furthermore, we have to to give and sacrifice with a childlike faith that says this, ultimately that says this, that acknowledges this, that God knows what's best for me, and that he will take care of me like he took care of the faithful widow. So this morning we should ask this question Remember, the Word of God is, 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 is a means by which the Lord gives us understanding, a means by which He reasons with us, and, and, and He challenges us in doing so. And so this morning, I think we should, ask, uh, we, should, we should ask, is the Lord asking us to give all that we have? Because when it comes down to it, what the Lord really wants from us is our whole heart the whole of our life. And in regards to our hearts, I think this can be the hardest thing for us to all give. Considering that in this life, our hearts get battered, our hearts can be broken, and our hearts can be bruised by the things that happen to us and by the choices that we make. And because of these painful things that we encounter that hurt our hearts, we struggle with trust, right? We struggle with trust, and we can find ourselves, as a result, building up walls. We get hurt, we don't want to trust, so we build up walls, walls around our heart. And when we do so, we often, and at the same time, we then encapsulate those very things that are causing us hurt. We're holding on to the bitterness because we then encapsulate our own mistakes, our own problems, and our own sins rather than, than releasing them over to God, Jehovah Rapha, the one who can heal. And as humans, we have this tendency not only to encapsulate these things that, that as we build these walls up, but we also have a tendency to cling to personal pains and sorrows. And in doing so, we, we convince ourselves that these things belong to us and that we have to carry them. There's this sense of maybe identification in that. And when really the only thing that we should find our identity in is in Jesus Christ and who we are in Him, not in the past hurts, not in our past failures, not in our past mistakes. But our sorrow, our sin, our pain, and our mistakes, you see, they belong to Jesus. Think about that. I'm going to say it again. Our sorrows, all of our pain, every one of our mistakes, all of our sin, they belong to Jesus. Remember, he suffered for them. He died for them. And if we offer them to him, he can and will heal us. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, there's this invitation from Jesus who said this. He said, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what? What is it? What is it in, in, in our life that might represent these two mites that the widow gave? What is it in your life that might represent these two mites? Perhaps it's that we can't forgive, like I already mentioned. We're holding on to unforgiveness. We're holding on. That's when you hold on to the hurt. You hold on to the, because you don't want to let go of the hurt because you're not wanting to forgive. And there's no healing. There's bitterness in that place. And maybe that's what you need to cast into the offering before the Lord today. Perhaps you, it's, it's, a, it's a battle with addiction and you're fighting that on your own. Maybe there's a certain identity wrapped into that Because that's all you've ever known. That's all you've ever been known as. Maybe it's a struggle to control temper. And the Lord's asking you today to take that and to cast it before him as an offering and receive the healing. You see, these things and countless others, which are ultimately spiritual ailments, they can be offered up for God's healing today. Remember, the Bible teaches us that in giving, we receive. I love that. I think often we look at that only in the the materialistic kind of way. But the healing that the Lord has purchased for us on the cross is a complete healing. And in giving to him these things that we're holding on to, we will receive. And this is especially true when we give all we can and all that is asked from us by God. And so what is is your two mites? Let us give out of our poverty today because it's an acknowledgement, it's a recognition that without Him, we have nothing, that without Him, we are nothing. As we continue on, like I said, and read through the rest of the text and really look at the questions that, that, that um, the disciples asked Jesus in regards to literally what we're going to be looking at as we continue on is in times things. Okay? As we look at the questions that the disciples asked Jesus in regards to in time events, I want to point out that in regards to our relationship with God, one of, the very, one of the primary ways that He communicates with us is through His Word, through the Bible. However, many people misunderstand the things that God speaks about in His Word because because they take things out of context. And and here's the other reason why. is because we only want to listen to what a portion of what God has said about any given subject. (laughs) However, when it comes to the Word of God, something more is needed in order to be able to understand, in order to be able to discern the Bible tells us the spiritual things that God is trying to communicate to us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says this. It says, these things we also speak, not in words which, which, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing, theory, spirit, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive this, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And I make mention of this to point out that, guys, without the Spirit of God, the discerning of spiritual truths, the spiritual truths found within His Word, within the Bible, these kinds, of, these kinds of discerning things that God wants to speak to our hearts, it will be impossible for us to understand even though we study God's Word if God's Spirit is not invited in. However, with the Holy Spirit, we are able to clearly and concisely hear from God we are clearly and concisely able to understand how the words on these pages which have this supernatural ability to change our lives can change us we understand so as we continue on and seek to keep context and and furthermore rely upon the Holy Spirit to discern spiritual truths I believe listen I believe that these in time events detailed in this chapter I believe they can be easily understood I don't think they're complicated things when we rely on these means by which God's provided. And I believe this is something that we need to understand because many people have and many people do take the teachings of Jesus that are found in this chapter out of context. And in doing so, they've formulated opinions and even doctrines apart from the Spirit of God about end times that are contrary to what Jesus is teaching. And so with that, we continue on in verse 5, and it says, Then there as then as some spoke of the temple... Remember, Jesus is in the temple... He's witnessed the widow. Now they're witnessing some other things. Jesus and his disciples, they're kind of people watching, right? Something that I like to do at the airport. It's a good place for that. It says, Then, as some spoke in the temple of how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, Jesus said, once again Jesus spoke, and he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another. That shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? Okay, here's the questions. But when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. You might want to underline that. For these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, okay, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before the kings and the rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. As a t- for testimony, therefore, settle it in your hearts to not meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all. For your namesake, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. I'm sure at that point, these disciples were going, maybe we shouldn't have asked this question. <laughs> be careful what you ask for, right? All right, so to begin with, we have to understand, as we look to keep context, we have to understand that these verses need to be looked at in light of the words that have been spoken at the end of the previous chapter that we studied about last week. Why? Because they are what sets the context for what follows here, for the events that we're reading about now. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 20, Jesus had warned the people. He warned them to beware of the religious leaders who had rejected Him as their Messiah and had chosen a path that was leading towards condemnation. Okay? And in Matthew chapter 23, which also accounts these same events, we are told that Jesus mourned over the nation's rejection of him, and he spoke a judgment in Matthew chapter 23, verses 38 and 39, and he said this: "See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall not see me no more until you say this: Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." And he's speaking about the nation of Israel, the people as a whole and these judgments that Jesus had proclaimed on the nation and its leaders would have been shocking news since the, the Jewish people still had great national pride even though they were currently under the rule of the Roman Empire. In fact, if you look at verse 5 where it tells us that about the people in the temple who were, were, were speaking of the glory of the temple, here, this is an evidence for us, this was an evidence of the of the national pride that they had because the temple itself stood... In their mind, as a national monument for everything that the Hebrew people had hoped for and believed in. In fact, we know that Herod had recently, that Herod had reconstructed this temple. It was a recent reconstruction, and its construction was on on top of a mountain, and, the, and the, base of this, uh, the base of this structure was raised up by a supporting wall that spanned an area. Think about it here. Now, it was a wall, a supporting wall that spans an area of 40 square acres. It's huge in regards to, to building and an and architectural uh, achievement. And sadly... Today, only a small section of that supporting wall remains today. And, and, and it's, it's what the Hebrew people often refer to as something very familiar to us as the wailing wall. Which, which is a, really still a massive wall, but it's small in comparison to what it had been. And each stone that was used to build this temple at this time, we're told that it was hand-carved out of solid rock. And each stone was carved to fit perfectly together without any kind of mortar at all. Furthermore, these stones, they were, quar- they, were, they were carved at the quarries that they were min- mined from, and then they were transported to the Temple Mount and then assembled one by one. And some of the stones that have recently been excavated by archaeologists, they have found that some of these stones that were quarried and then brought up to the Temple Mount and then stacked one by one, some of these stones are as, as long as 40 feet 40 feet long, and they weighed as much as 400 tons. And the construction of the temple gives us a good illustration, really, of the Christian life, guys. And just like each stone was carved to fit perfectly together, we know that God's Word tells us that in this life that we're also being carved and molded into the image of Jesus Christ so that we might be fit together. In order that we might be a spiritual house, the Bible says, who also serves God's purposes. Just a real quick side note in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5, it points this out, saying, Coming to him as living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God, precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the people here in verse 5, as we read this, and, and looking at this massive, wonderful building... And admiring how beautiful the temple was, as, they, as, they, as they, they were admiring the construction that Herod had taken place. By the way, it took 46 years for Herod to build. 46 years. And according to the account, Herod's temple was a spectacular sight to see. And not only was it, elaborate, was it um, elaborately decorated with all kinds of precious stones, listen to this, there was a thick border... Historians like Josephus and others tell us that there was this thick border of pure gold that wrapped itself all the way around the temple, and that on the Temple Mount, which the stones were white, with this this band of white gold all the or this band of gold all the way around it, we're told that uh, that when the sun hit it, that it would that it would shine in such a way that you could see it from thirty miles away. And large amounts of gold also filled the temple on the inside of it as everything was coated and covered in gold. And it was this gold that would become the primary reason for the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy spoken there in verse 6 regarding the destruction of the temple and how specifically no stone would be left upon another. Think about it. The people are there. They're admiring this building that had just been reconstructed, rebuilt in such a way that it had never been built before. Precious gems, gold, big, big stones that had been fit together without mortar, the house of God. And Jesus said, you see what they're admiring? He said, not too long from now, it's going to be torn down. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. And we know, guys, this prophecy, an exact fulfillment to what Jesus had said came to pass in 70 AD, less than 40 years after Jesus had been crucified. And at that time, the Roman general, there's a Roman general, was a Roman general, his name is Titus, he stormed Jerusalem. He stormed Jerusalem in another, in a response to another failed rebellion that was led by a political sect of Jews called Zealots. And the Jewish historian Josephus claims that during this attack, nearly, uh, he claimed that, 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 that nearly a million Jewish people were killed by the Romans, and over 100,000 were taken captive. As a matter of fact, that 100,000 were taken captive, were, were marched back to Rome. And, and there, in Rome, in Italy, in Rome, there's is what's called the Arch of Titus, that accounts today, it, there's engravings on there that account and historically record the events that we took place as, as Titus rode into Rome, having brought down this rebellion, bringing over 100,000 prisoners back to Rome. But when Titus's army made their way into Jerusalem at this time, history teaches that a Roman soldier tossed a flaming torch into the temple and causing it to catch fire and burn. In fact, the fire was so tense that all the gold that we just talked about, on the outside, on the inside, it melted, and it ran into the very cracks of all the stones. No mortar in there. All the, all, the, all the gold ran in there. And seeking to reclaim the gold that had ran into the cracks, the Roman soldiers tore down the temple stone by stone so that not one was left upon another. Hence, all of the stones of this mighty structure were thrown down and as impossible as it may have seemed at the time in fulfillment to the prophecy spoken here by Jesus, it happened. And it was this prophecy, okay, it was this prophecy alongside the previously spoken judgment that we read about in Matthew, about the house of Israel being left desolate, that raised his disciples' curiosity to ask these three questions in verse 7. And I know it reads only as two, but I want to break it down. I want to point out that in this verse, that even though there are really two questions that are being asked, but when we look at them, we realize that there are really three parts to to these two questions. The first is, if you're taking notes, the first is this. Tell us when these things will be. That's the first question. Jesus, when will the temple be torn down? When will the destruction of Jerusalem come? When will these in-time things that you're speaking about, when will these things be? They also ask, what signs will there be? How will we know? What signs will there be leading up to it? And when they said... When these things are about to take place, we understand, when we read in Matthew's gospel account, that they were also asking about the end of the age, okay? Three specific thoughts in regards to these questions. We're going to really answer the first, first part of this today, Next week, we'll, we'll finish the rest of the chapter and look at the, the remaining two aspects of this questioning that the disciples had asked. So as we look at these questions, we need to realize that we're about to enter into the study of end times and, and, and um, uh, is often referred to as eschatology. If you've ever heard that word before, it simply means the study of end times. And, there are, and there, I want to I qualify this before I begin. There are many differing views of exactly how these in-time events will play out. There are a lot of different views. But before we look at the following verses, I want to give you what I believe is a biblical timeline of in-time events. Okay. To begin with, the Bible is clear when it teaches us that there is going to be a literal physical return of Jesus who will come to earth to set up his throne in Jerusalem to rule and reign over all of the nations of the earth. Okay, the Bible's clear in teaching us that. That Jesus is coming back, there will be a physical little return, and he will set up his throne in Jerusalem to rule and reign over all the earth. Okay, prior to this event, we are taught that Jesus will appear in the clouds at a hidden time. And and, and at that time, with the sound of a trumpet, the word of God tells us that he will take those who are alive and believing in him as their Lord and Savior, that Jesus will take them to be with him in heaven. We call this event the rapture of the church. And after this event, the Bible teaches us that there is a seven-year period of time that will follow, a time that is appointed for the judgment and the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth and upon the remaining inhabitants of the earth, which will start um, after the rapture, and this is what we refer to as the seven years of tribulation. Okay, The following seven years of God's wrath, when you look at the book of Revelation, also the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel corresponding Old Testament passages okay, that, that, that quantify this for us. It tells us that the seven-year period of time of God's wrath that they're divided into, into, into two halves, equal portions, with, by an event that's called the abomination of desolations. This event will occur at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Three-and-a-half years into this, the Antichrist, we're told, will enter into the reconstructed temple and he will go into what's called the holy place. The most holy place. The holy of holies. place where the Ark of the Covenant had been in the past. And he will demand at that point for the Jewish people to worship him as God. After this, there will be what's called a greater tribulation. The Bible says such as has never been seen before. And it will last the remainder of that three and a half year period of the seven years. Then at the end of these seven years the whole world will see, the Bible says the whole world will see the literal, physical return of Jesus. This event that we're reading, this event, this this is the event, excuse me, that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. You can go and read about it for yourself. And this is where Jesus is seen as the mighty and just judge bearing the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, Even though there are differing thoughts within the church today exactly how the timing of all these events that I just spoke to you about will play out, the one thing that matters the most is the fact that, listen, and and this is the most important thing even in regards to what we're talking about today, the most important fact is that Jesus is going to come back physically, And, and every serious Bible scholar does not dispute this fact. So, this morning, I will offer this to you. If we find ourselves disagreeing over a timeline of in time events as I so laid it out, so be it. If there's a disagreement, so be it. I'll be the first to concede that there is some room for some disagreement. However, listen, if we find ourselves separating from each other over a timeline, of in-time events, then shame on us, because we who are brothers will have divided, the Bible tells us, over a reason that Jesus has not said to ever divide over. So, back to the question. Back to the question starting with this. Tell us when these things will be. And in the verses that follow, in verses 8 through 19, which we read, these verses hold the answer to this question of when these things will be. And in this first section, Jesus answers this first part of his disciples' question in verse 9 when he said this. He said, and that's why I had you underline it, these things must come to pass first. So right then and there, we're being told about some things that have to come to pass first. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, the cool thing about it is it gives a, it gives a, a defining name to these things, and it refers to these things that have to come to pass first in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, as the beginning of sorrows. That's what it's called, referred to. The beginning of sorrows. And and, and these beginning of sorrows, they are signs that tell us that we are in the end times. God wants us to know. I love that. He always tells his kids what he's going to do before he does it, and that's what we're reading about here, specifically, clearly, and concisely. And so once again, the beginning of sorrows, these things that have to come past first are are, are things that that are an indicator for us or evidences for us that, that we are in the end times. And the truth of the matter is, is the departure of Jesus up until the present age which we're now living in, the truth is, is Christians from generation to generation have all looked for Jesus' return and the end to come. We have. And each generation has had the reasons to believe that they would be the last generation in light of the things that we're now reading about here. And in these verses, we are told that there would be, first of all, those who claim to be Jesus who has returned. Many will come in my name, saying that they are me. In other words, you want to do an interesting search. Go to Google. You're going to get all weirded out about it, though. Go to Google and 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 just type in some kind of language that asks if the Messiah's returned or if the Messiah is here, and see how many people, even today, are claiming to be Jesus in the flesh, returned. People, as a matter of fact, who have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of followers today. And I don't mean like Facebook followers. I mean like cult kind of followers, which is kind of like Facebook, but <laughs> amen. Amen. But, but the first thing is, is that there will be those who claim to be Jesus' return. And Jesus said that there will also be wars, rumors of wars, commotions, famine, diseases and persecutions, false prophets, and lawlessness. These, those, that, 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 that sentence is, is basically a summation of everything that Jesus said will be the beginning of sorrows, things that must come to pass first before his return. And, and when I look at these things, when I consider these things and what, in light of what's going on in our world today, I believe that we're living in the end times. And I believe that Jesus' return is very near. But as I expound on these things, guys, my goal is not to convince us, to convince you that we're living in the end times. That's not the goal. The goal is to only and simply expound on the text and let you decide so that we all might be prepared for his return so that we all might live with expectation for his return but with that being said i believe that we have more reasons than any other generation prior to us has had to believe that the end is near i previously mentioned matthew chapter 24 verse 8 where it describes these things and jesus said that 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 they must first come to pass that matthew describes them as the beginning of sorrows but listen That phrase, that title, the beginning of sorrows, can be translated from the Greek to to literally say, these are the beginning of birth pangs. Okay, That language there, the beginning of sorrows, more accurately translates to this. These are the beginning of the birth pangs. So if we look at these events that we're being told about, that lead up to Jesus' return with the comparison to birth pangs, and literally, a woman who is going to deliver a child, I think it gives us a better understanding of what we're looking for. In other words, just like there is an increase and in intensity of pain for a woman who is about to deliver a child, so too will there be an increase in intensity of these things that are spoken about in these verses before the Lord's return, before the world, before we are delivered. With this thought, I'd like to point out a few things. I want to start out by pointing, I want to start by pointing out that it wasn't until 1804, now think about it, the, 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 the evolutionists believe the world to be millions and billions of years old, right? If you're a, a little creationist, as the Bible teaches us, we believe the world to be somewhere between four and 6,000 years old, okay? So if you think about that, It's a long time, even 6,000 years. It wasn't until 1804, when you think about the age of the earth, whatever you want to believe in all, this is fine with me at this moment, but we know that it wasn't until 1804 that the population of the earth reached a billion people we know that before the flood there was some some there was a population increase and then of course the 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 population of the earth was wiped out down to 7 but since then if you even consider from the days of noah the time of the flood from that time till 1804 it took it took uh, uh that many years uh, for the population of the earth to reach 1 billion now, now keep that in in your mind then In 1927, only 123 years later, the population of the earth was able to double to 2 billion people. 33 33 years later, in 1960, the population of the earth reached 3 billion. And only 39 years later, in 1999, the world's population doubled again from 3 billion in 39 years to 6 billion. That's phenomenal. And current statistics say that we are now 7.7 billion people on the planet Earth. There's an intensity. There's an intensity that we're looking at here in regards to the population of the Earth. Now, I point this out to show the exponential population growth that we now find ourselves in because... With the population increase, there's also been an exponential increase of disease and famine. In fact, the, the things that Jesus says are going to take place before his return. In fact, studies today show that of the, one-third of the earth's population is hungry and suffers from malnutrition. One-third of the earth's population suffers from malnutrition and is hungry. Another third is starving and is dying daily as a result of famine, globally speaking. And less than one-third of the earth's population is well-fed because of disease and because of famine. And when when we are told that there will also be wars and commotions, we might ask ourselves, how is this any different than it has always been, right? Man's always been fighting with one another, especially in light of the fact that that only 8% of the entire world's history, this is a cool fact, only 8% of the entire world's history that's ever been recorded has ever been without a war, when you look at a time frame. 92% of the time that man has been given on the earth, 92% of that time we've been at war with one another. Think about even Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. They were the first. However, we have seen an increase in wars like never before. In the 12th century, there was a documented 2,678 wars or conflicts. And in just the last twenty five years of the 20th century, there have been more well there have been there 's an exact number i don 't know how they come up with this, but here it is thirteen thousand eight hundred and thirty five wars recorded with over a hundred million people did as a result. Wow, wow And the point is, is all that we have historically had famines, wars, and diseases we 've not seen these things. With the intensity that we are seeing now, as we have ever seen throughout all of man's history. Another thing for us to consider in light of what Jesus said is that there. Jesus said there will also be great earthquakes in various places, and as you might expect, earthquakes have also has also exponentially been increasing. In the ninth century, one major earthquake of 5.0 or greater was recorded. In the eleventh. Two. In the 16th century, two. In the 17th century, two. In the 19th century, only nine. And then in the 20th century, up to the year 1970, there had been 40. But since then, that number has skyrocketed since 1970. And and since 1970, there has been more than 2,000 earthquakes of 5.0 or greater that have been registered and documented. I will say that in recent years there has been a decline, but when you look at the overall package that we're talking about here, there has been an exponential increase in these things, an increase and an intensity of what Jesus said will take place before his return. All of this to say is that we have good reason to believe that the time we live in is not like any other time of any other generation before us since it's obvious that we're seeing an intensity and an increase of the things that Jesus had said would be the signs that must come to pass before a second coming. Therefore, it's more than reasonable, and I would even propose today necessary, it's more than reasonable and necessary for us to believe that time is short. Guys, time is short. It is. And the point is, be ready. And this was the reason for why Jesus had told us to what told us for what to be looking for. He wanted us to be ready. This morning I'm going to close with reading from First Thessalonians, if the worship team wants to come up. First Thessalonians chapter five. If you want to turn there and follow along, I'm going to read 11 verses. This admonition to the Thessalonians but concerning the times and the seasons brethren you have no need that i should write to you for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the lord so comes as a thief in the night so when they say peace and safety then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape you but you brethren you are not in the darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. Let us not slumber. Let us be awake and watchful. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and let us be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, How so? Guys, by putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Amen. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. In closing, I want to point out that there That there is no, guys, there is no unfulfilled prophecy that stands in the way of the rapture of the church. There is no unfulfilled prophecy that stands in the way of the rapture of the church as all things that were predicted to happen prior to this event have taken place. And as we have seen this morning, it appears that our world is experiencing some severe labor pains. So I'm here to say to you this morning to encourage you. The time is short. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Let's stand. Father, we want to be ready for your return. And as we look back to the example of the widow who gave all, Lord, we want to give all to you. We want to hold nothing back. We want to be useful vessels in your hands and for your kingdoms, for your kingdom. So Lord, whether it's um, the money in our wallet, or the the unforgiveness in our heart, Lord, we give it all to you. And we again submit ourselves to you, asking, Lord, that you would rule and reign over our lives, over our hearts, over our minds. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, whom we love and who we believe. Amen. of the greatest things about our Savior is even though we know things are coming, we don't have to